Hi, I'm Andy Murray. Welcome to It's a Customer's World podcast. Now more than ever, retailers and brands are accelerating their quest to be more customer-centric. But to be truly customer-centric, it requires both a shift in mindset and ways of working, not just in marketing, but in all parts of the organization. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with practitioners, thought leaders, and scholars to hear their thoughts on what it takes to be a leader in today's customer-centric world. Hello, everyone. In this episode, I am so excited to have with me Brian Gildenberg. He's going to talk about retail media networks. Brian is a known thought leader and advisor in the space of connected commerce, and he comes with years of experience working with top agencies and service service providers such as Kantar. He's currently an SVP of commerce at Omnicom's Commerce Group. So welcome, Brian, to our show, and I'd like to start by asking you to introduce yourself and what experiences have informed your perspective on retail media networks? Well, um, thanks, uh, thanks, Andy, and thanks for the opportunity. Well, I think uh, you kind of you kind of nailed it in both in both angles. And I'll start with the early stuff first. Um, up until 2020, um, as a couple of people listening to this may know, I was uh, I was a Cantor for a long time, um, and um, um, on the Cantar retail IQ side of Cantar, you know, studying the retail industry around the world, and you know, you and I have been hanging around the space for uh, for a while at this point. So, and um, about ten years ago, probably, um, it became apparent that the the retail ecosystem was starting to collapse in on the digital ecosystem through e-commerce, but that the outcome of that was going to be this sort of nascent field of digital media. And you kind of watched all that evolve with Amazon Teams, and we'll talk more about that as we get into this. But um, but over time, you know, probably over the last five years or so, um, it became pretty apparent that at some point retailers were going to need to gear themselves up into retail media networks. And then my experiences from there were fueled by two things. One of which is one of which is COVID, which uh, I do think fundamentally changed. If it didn't fundamentally change e-commerce in the U.S., it certainly fundamentally changed people's perception of e-commerce, um, yeah. and not just consumers, but investors. Um, and that, I think, is where a lot of the pressure is coming from today, is a perceived pressure from the investment community that Amazon is monetizing advertising in a way that other retailers are not, and that Amazon and e-commerce are a much bigger deal to people evaluating retailers than it used to be. And there's some reality to that as well. And secondarily for me, I started working for Omnicom. And though I'd worked for WPP for a long time, mm-hmm. Cantar was kind of an adjacent property to that. Now it's a completely yep. adjacent property because it's been sold um, but uh, to Bain. But, uh, but started working more closely with the media agencies at Omnicom than I'd probably worked with the media agencies at WPP. So got immersed in this problem. I'd spent a long time staring at retail media from the retail side of the fence. And I spent the last few years trying to straddle the fence between the retail side and the media side. Well, you know, that's funny you say that because uh, we've been doing quite a bit of research in uh, this space recently with the University of Arkansas, and it's come through loud and clear, the blurring of the lines that this, you know, thrust into the the sudden thrust and evolution into retail media networks is causing between marketing and commercial inside of CPG, but also inside of retail. Uh, you know, this blurring of the lines is uh, definitely uh, making it more difficult to come up with easy solutions to sort it out. 
Well, certainly the, the University of Arkansas and, and a retailer that may or may not be close by the University of Arkansas are, you know, going through an interesting experience right now. You've got a lot of people who are involved in the media business for a large Arkansas based retailer show, I mean, anonymous. So yeah, yeah. not Harps Foods, but the other one. Yeah. And, um, and who have never been to Arkansas. <laughs> so yeah. they, got, they, got, they got hired yeah, yeah. COVID. Good point. <laughs> and, uh, and don't really know necessarily an enormous amount about certainly the history of Walmart, but even really about Walmart's business in terms of you know, like how it operates yeah. and play out. So, oops, sorry. Sorry, we, 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 we let the cat out of the bag on who the retail in Arkansas is. So. <laughs> I think we all know. But you can't really, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, finish your thought. No, I was just kidding with you. Yeah. Well, you can't go to a marketing conference today, and you and I were just at one this week, uh, without seeing the agenda chock full of presentations on retail media networks. In your view, how would you describe the promise of retail media networks and also specifically what's in it for the consumer? Well, I think um, I think promise has been pretty well articulated. And, uh, you know, you could, uh, you know, everybody can whip out their buzzword bingo cards at this point for uh, for all, all of the things that are all true. Closed loop, full funnel, traceable from impressions to purchase, cookie, cookie degradation, first party data. You know, I, yeah. I think anybody loosely familiar with the topic is probably loosely familiar with the promise, which is in the end that the ability, the, the, the magic silver bullet of marketing was always to, wow, I wish I could show somebody an ad and then know that they bought something. And, Absolutely. You know, and that promise is in some ways, you know, visible and it's, it's easier to see how you would realize that in a retail media network than almost anywhere else. So I think, I think that at its core is the promise, right? Yeah. And then I think secondarily, um, right now there is, some challenges with the digital media ecosystem in particular, because um, I think there was a lot of conversation about cookie degradation and how that was going to fuel retail media. The yeah. biggest problem with digital media has nothing to do with cookies or any other type of snack food. Um, it's 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 fruit. It's Apple um, mm. and what Apple's and what Apple's done to with IDPA mostly to Facebook performance marketing and the ways in which digital media buyers today are just looking for new places to spend since some of the digital media techniques and tactics they were using before just don't work as well as they used to. So I think that's the other promise right now is that in addition to all of the long-term visionary harmonization of media and purchase, this is the short-term arbitrage opportunity to buy media that works better. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think the Apple impact is is significant. I mean, there was quite a bit of work going on to try to see how far you could take third-party data with all different types of tools and then beginning to ingest that into market mix modeling so you can find out incrementality. And there was a lot of traction there, but nothing could compare to actually having closed-loop first-party data. So I think you're absolutely right about that. You know, as you compare the promise, though, with the industry and where it is today, just as you see it today, how would you describe the current reality? What are some of the big barriers to for the industry to reach that promise? Um, um, well, I think there's a couple that are obvious, um, which are that first and foremost, let's start on the retailer side, which is that I think you've got at least three on the retailer side, one of which is just a very basic one, which is capabilities, right? So. Yeah. If you're going to sell media to people that buy media for a living, you're going to need to give them what they were buying. And um, and retailers, I think, were slow to the realization that that was quite different than just the promise of, 
we're going to sell some stuff and we're not going to beat you up as much in the joint business plan as we used to. As they, start, they started saying that, they then realized they were talking to a bunch of people who simply weren't incented to care about the joint business plan yep. and were incented to care very much about some very specific metrics and media um, that media people like to have delivered to them. And um, yeah, the metaphor I'll often use for this is that you know, the retailers were used to dealing with people on the manufacturer side whose primary objective in a return on in a return on capital world was returns. They were numerator people. They were people that wanted to sell stuff. And what media people by and large are trying to do, though this is not to demean it in any way, it's just that most media incentives are aimed at the denominator part of an ROI equation. They're aimed at buying things more efficiently. They're aimed at buying eyeballs as cost-effectively as possible, not buying the same eyeballs twice to do the same job. That's great, and that's really important, and it's just really different than what the retailers are used to. So I think this capabilities issue, obviously there's a silos issue on the retail side. And the third one is just a basic perspective issue. Um, you got to sell media to people. Retailers are used to buying stuff, and that's people that are buying too. things don't always sell very well. So. Yeah. Um, and I, I think probably another thing that people underestimated is how long of a runway Amazon's had, and they've become now the benchmark for retail media networks. But yeah. it's, it's you know they've been years at, at two billion in technology investments. You know, and the, and the tech lift is has been probably a bit underestimated in terms of how hard that is to pull off to be a proper media uh, entity. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm going bar to borrow your metaphor and beat it to death then. Um, cause I don't know that the problem wasn't length of runaway. It's that everybody else was trying to fly planes out of a Harbor, right? Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like there were like pre-existing infrastructure for ships and all of a sudden airplanes show up and you're like, well, I can't really land a plane in the Harbor. Right. So I got to go right. build something that does this cause it's different. Yeah. Amazon didn't have the pre-existing infrastructure so they could build it all ground up. Right. And um, I think that gets you into a very interesting place right now on the Amazon side, at least my observation, which is that, to be honest, a lot of what uh, the biggest, I think the weirdest thing that happened in all of this is basically around the concept of search, right? Yeah. Search for a brand was a media capability. So, you know, there's basically media teams learned how to do this. They learned Google, they learned SEO, they did all this stuff. Google's now the largest digital advertising platform in the world, yada, 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 right? So, so search is a media capability. Mm -hmm. So then Amazon has a search bar on it. So it's cool. That's search too. We'll call that media. Well, in a retail environment, search is really different. Now, search is different than media anyway, but that's a whole different podcast, right? Like right. The, fact that, the fact that searching is probably more like shopping than it is like watching television is probably a, a bigger question for a different day. Yep. Certainly. Certainly in a commerce ecosystem, it's it's really a lot like shopping because it is shopping. So I think a lot of what is called media in the Amazon ecosystem is work that would have been done in an existing retail infrastructure by trade. Because yeah. a lot of it is putting stuff in front of shoppers and getting them to buy it. I mean, you know, in the end, you know, buying a you know, buying a product, uh, a product listing out on Amazon based off of search looks to me way more like buying an end cap than it does like making a TV show. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, it's, I've, I've, it's, I've heard you, I've heard you use that metaphor, which I think is brilliant of describing right. that, that paid search result in a retail search environment as think of it as an end cap, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a display. It's something, it's something you put up on the way to buying something that's either the thing the person came to buy and they're buying it quicker, or it's different than what the person came to buy and you're trying to switch them. That's what an end cap does. Yeah. So, uh, so, and uh, in a physical store. And the funny thing is, is that I was joking with a, another person at the same event, Andy, we were at. It's like, you know, for all the analytics that go into marketing over the years and the billions of PhDs that have died on the hill of trying to figure all this stuff out, you know, the, the only thing we know with 100% certainty is that end caps work. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> That's literally that. all we know. <laughs> so, uh, so when you give somebody who's not used to end caps, end cap returns, it's a bit like what happens if a four-year-old steals a Coca-Cola for the first time and they start bouncing off the walls because they got caffeine and sugar running through their system for the first time simultaneously. And I think that's a lot of what happened in retail media, to be honest. I think people got, I think people were buying end caps thinking they were buying media and ended up seeing returns that were just way different than what they were used to and started accelerating spend to that degree because what in reality they were doing though they didn't realize it, is they were kind of buying trade, even yeah. though even though it was labeled media and described as media, its function was more direct and more proximate to selling. Yeah. And when you're in a trade environment into a commercial ecosystem, things like, do you have it in stock? You know, considerations around inventory. We heard a lot at, at the conference around uh, how inventory forecasting, inventory connectivity to the actual, you know, should I place this ad that's going to, or search display that's going to connect to a store that doesn't have the product, right? And that's not typically a consideration of the uh, manufacturer's inventory position in most proper media buys. No, not at all. And uh, but it is a huge consideration in, uh, you know, in brick and mortar. Just ask anybody that's ever called on Target for a living and trying to get Target to buy enough promotional inventory for a brick and mortar promotion is a uh, that's a PhD level class equal equal to building a marketing mix model is yeah. getting Target to adjust their presments on promotions. Yeah, I think the, the other piece, too, which, you know, better than me, right, is that in the retail media side, particularly with Amazon, the minute you go out of stock, not only are you not selling stuff, but you're back down to zero in terms of building up your organic results as well. Because you're like, you know, it's a, you'll get sick of my metaphors by the end of this podcast if you're not already. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the metaphor is just that it's, it's, it's like the old game shoots and ladders, except they just start getting ladders. <laughs> There's moving <laughs> one at a time and then shoots. So, so yeah, it's the way less fun way version of shoots. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, so let's go, let's move to a different part of this. Do you think the industry's helped itself by not having a, a proper definition of retail media networks? Because I think we've kind of thrown everybody in the same definition. And to me, it feels like, you know, Amazon is not an omni-channel retailer, really. An omni-channel retailer has some different dynamics to it that are important to understand than just, you know, trying to benchmark against Amazon's model. Yeah, I, I think, um, yes, I, I certainly think that the notion that a Walmart or a Target was going to evolve something that worked the way Amazon does was probably not grounded in any sort of reality. Um, and yes, I do think definitional or not, I, I do think the industry has been slowed down a little bit by just trying to port the Amazon model into right. places where it makes less sense. Um, you know, to, to go back to our metaphor that we beat to death, it's literally mm -hmm. like trying to run a runway through a harbor. It's like, yeah. well, no, it's a great metaphor. Well, the well, other sure. thing is yeah, they, they probably haven't taken advantage of some assets that, uh, Amazon yeah. app, which is in-store, you know, how does the digital in-store experience, the, 
the uh, in-store mode on apps connect to the retail media networks. And, you know, foot traffic can be a major thing, especially for mid-tier retailers that don't have the online traffic to really compete. But, you know, and, it, and I did feel, I do feel like there's signs of, of more emphasis to figure that, that part out. Yeah, well, I think that's, I think that's interesting because I think there's, I think the whole notion that trying to apply digital media into an ecosystem where there is a, there's a joint business plan that just has a very different rhythm than your Amazon joint business plan. Mm -hmm. Amazon, it's also, it's also adaptive and algorithmic and adjusted and item based at Amazon. It's almost a little bit more like Amazon to me is always a little bit more like digital Costco than anything else. And yeah. Costco's joint business planning process has always been really different than everybody else's. It just doesn't, this is a lot of stuff you don't do in that ecosystem that you do in a Walmart joint business plan or a Kroger joint business plan or a Target one. So when you try to layer in an entirely different revenue stream with an entirely different cast of characters, an entirely different way of evaluating what success looks like and what it doesn't, and then just try to layer that in on top of something that's already there. I, I think people probably vastly underestimated the complexity of that. I think secondarily, the issue that comes up, of course, is that there was no historical trade budget with Amazon as it grew up. There was, you know, people spent money on Amazon, but there wasn't like a, a multi-year history of certain levels of it and amounts of it and what you spent it on and having to achieve a monthly volume target for Amazon that was locked into the P&L. That was basically how you plan the company, ran your factories and, you know, told, the, told your factory employees they could go on vacation like the Walmart plan. So if you start messing around with all that stuff without really understanding what the, what the more deep-rooted operational implications are to the brand, it gets kind of weird. Yeah. And then I just think in general, from a branding point of view, the big promise of retail media to some degree is about taking trade funding, particularly outside of Walmart, where trade funding is different. Right. But at Target or Kroger, the ability to, or any of these other retailers, the ability to take money I'm spending on stuff that isn't performing and put deployed on anything else, that's mm -hmm. a really big opportunity. But that's not media spend. That's right. more intelligent allocation of resources I was already dedicating. They're going to sell more, which right. is great, except the people running the retail media network don't feel like they're driving incremental revenue for the retailer. Yeah, and I think exactly. the, com the complexity of that problem, I think, was was poorly understood at the start. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Well, talking about the complexities, if you look at where the revenue is coming from today, it appears to me most of it's probably coming from the top 30 brands, at least as you look across the handful of retailers that are capturing those incremental funds uh, in this space. Yet we still hear of new uh, retail media networks being launched almost like, again, mushrooms after the rain. Uh, a new one launched this week by 7-Eleven. Uh, is there room for all of them in the future from your point of view? And can CPGs even manage the level of complexity uh, and what must be true for mid-tier brands to participate at any kind of scale? Let's break that into two parts because I think your, your observation on the 30 biggest CPG companies dominating the spend, I think, is an interesting one. It does feel as though retail media is the first digital innovation since the internet that probably benefits scaled businesses more than unscaled ones. Like it really does feel like ex-Amazon 
that in the brick and mortar retail media ecosystem, I think scale's actually a real advantage. So I think this is one of the very few things that the digital ecosystem has unleashed that big companies are probably more prepared to work with than small ones to some degree. Yeah. So, but yeah, on the retailer side, look, I mean, I think if you, I mean, you, you're way more about advertising than I do. Um, but if you look at, you know, if you look at the history of any advertising platform, it serves up audiences that, that are one of three things. They're either super big, so I can draw my own segments within that audience if I'm a brand right. and find the relevant people I need. It's super distinctive so that it reflects an audience I'm already trying to sell to really well. And I can just sell to that whole audience in a way that's distinctive or it's, or it's programmatic feedstock. I mean, that's the, yeah. that's, those are your three choices. Um, so for the underscaled retail media networks, I would suggest that distinctiveness is going to be a, a, an attribute if they don't want to just get aggregated and bought programmatically, right. which I do think eventually will happen. And I think Citrus Ads is starting to do this with Grocery Web. And I, there are some there are some really good ways to do this. And I think if I'm a mid-sized supermarket chain, sure, you know, I can appeal to people that want to sell stuff in New York if I'm wait for them. But at some point, I got to figure out how I get my audience aggregated to other audiences so that I'm part of just bigger and more routine media purchasing. Because most of it just, most media buyers don't want to go to every regional cable, every regional network in the world. Yeah. That's why national television networks exist, right? right. So, you know, if, if it were efficient to buy ads on WNBC in New York and KYW in Philadelphia, NBC wouldn't exist, but it does. So, um, and that's why, because it's a new. Well, you talk about that aggregation. I, I, I know you've already talked about this on your own podcast, but the, you know, the Albertsons-Kroger uh, combination does seem a bit, almost even driven by the retail media opportunity that that might be able to create. But is that what you're talking about in terms of scaling those different banners? Well, yeah, I mean, you could certainly, you could certainly go out and buy the company. Yeah. Or you could, you could just, you could just, buy, you know, you could, you could Victor Kayama and like them so much you buy the company. Um, well, look what happened to him. But, um, but, or you could, um, or you could partner um, or, or I think that this is the new role that aggregators in this space should play, which is basically to act as a, you know, as a, as a trade desk, if you will, um, to, uh, to be able to allow a national, a shopper marketer to buy audiences programmatically and nationally that then get deployed across a variety of retailers. This, of course, creates one very huge problem, which is that that's not how most shopper marketing opportunities within a small retailer get bought today. So that's the right. amount of wiring that needs to go in to be able to have a seamless connection between selling audience opportunities programmatically as part of a larger deal. And then figuring out what that, so if I'm Nestle and I'm buying this national, I'm trying to buy a national Hispanic audience across a wide range of regional grocery chains, how the accounting works for who gets credit where in terms of where I've spent, does the buyer see the credit for that? Does my account team pay for it? Does not? Those are all real questions that are going to need to get answers as that unfolds. But I think the, the direction of travel in that is clearly towards a point where a lot of these small audiences will need to be bought in a more programmatic and more aggregated way. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with that 100%. I've been closer to the challenges this is creating organizationally, source of funding and such inside of CPGs, and I lived it in the UK in terms of on the retail side. But I haven't really spoken to many people that uh, can speak a bit to how does this show up into the agency world who are, are chartered with bringing ideas and making the making this all work um, with different partners in this space. Because uh, I got to believe the agency models tend to follow the client structures and and so on and so forth. Are, are you seeing it challenging in, in, writ large, uh, maybe not just you know speaking about Omnicom, but from your industry perspective, how has this been challenging for the agencies to adapt? Well, I think all great agencies, you know, are mirror reflections of their client. And I think most of the great agencies are reflecting clients' deep confusion around the topic at the moment. I think we're doing a great job of that. Um, so, um, I get it. I, I think there's a, uh, I do think there's an interesting balancing act. And this is certainly something that, that, we're, that we're working through at mm -hmm. Omnicom in that, um, you know, retail media has got two words to it. And um I think for a long time, it was capital retail, small media, as the customer teams were largely tasked with trying to sort this stuff out as just another quote ask from the retailer outside of Amazon. Mm -hmm. And then I think over the last couple of years, to be honest, I think the switch has flipped a little bit where yeah. because it looks like media, because the media teams are hearing from their Amazon teams how effective it is, they now want to buy it because they want the credit for it, which is totally understandable. But they, I think there's a real opportunity for agencies to bring together expertise on retail and expertise on media into a place where those two words are are more similar in size in that equation yeah. and to realize that even if the retailer is pushing you more in a media direction because it's in their economic interest to do so the person paying for it is the brand and it may not be in the brand's economic interest to become as media centric in an approach to this as it is to the retailer because the brand one you know if you listen to my dear friend, Spencer Baird at Inmar, who will tell you that for an average consumer packaged goods company, their underperforming trade budget is larger than their media budget. Not their trade budget, just the underperforming part. The real opportunity for the CPG companies might be to repurpose money that's being poorly spent in the retail ecosystem. But in order for a media agency to even understand that problem, never mind be able to leverage it effectively, is a significant shift in capabilities and in perspective from where the world sits today. So I think there's, yeah. there's a lot, there's a lot of work to do on that front, but I do, I mean, I can certainly speak for Omnicom. We, we know that. Working yeah. And I, and I think to be fair, you know, the commercial side, yes, there was some unproductive media. If you were to look at measuring it by itself, would anybody just go buy in-store radio ads without a merchandising, uh, plan yeah. that, that captured that. But so I think you know, the historically shopper marketing has been about enhancing the overall return on retailer relationship and commercially, you know, how does it support it? How does it all come together? That factor isn't really a KPI on most media buyers, you know, list of what I care about is the return on retailer relationship. So you got a commercial team that's, you know, had that as in the toolbox of how yeah. to as you and I talked at the conference, it's a bit like that that world was painting with watercolors where there was a lot of bleed over between this and that in order to make a whole work, um, where in the media side, it's been a bit more precise or supposedly precise, like oil painting, where you expect to put this here and get a return and, and be clear about that. There's a couple. I, I think that, yeah, I think what you're looking at here is, <laughs> one, I think the problem is, is that it is watercolors, but you've got a bunch of people telling you it's an oil painting and that your vision's bad, um, which is, which is not great. 
Yeah. And I think, but, and I think some of this is that there is a, there's two sort of traps I think you can fall into here. One is a well-known trap in the media and digital world. And this is, I'm going to paraphrase Robert McNamara here, who basically said, goes, look, you know, it is critical to measure what is important. It is stupid to make important that which, that which you can measure. And, um, you know, and uh, hard lessons learned from Vietnam on that front, as he was the Secretary of Defense at the time. Um, I think marketing fall, I think digital marketing falls prey to that a lot. Um, where the notion of I can measure this, therefore it's important. Well, no, you can measure it, therefore you can measure it. Well, there's a lot of new, new conversations happening where you're just focusing on ROI, if you can measure it, let alone ROAS, uh, will actually shrink your brand, necessarily grow it. Well, it's just one of these things where the fact that you can get to granularity and precision doesn't make it useful, right? Like, right. Um, like it makes it precise. And I think that marketing in its thirst to quantify itself, because for years, CEOs have looked at marketers winning awards at Cam and gone, that's great. What are you doing? Like, yeah, it doesn't work. Know, how, do you, how do you, how do you, and I think marketing really swung the other way on that front, especially once the digital ecosystem cropped up. And yep. now there is this rush to show everybody your math homework, which is important. But there are times in which the diff, being able to measure every individual thing that happens and saying, well, this thing happened, therefore we should do this. It just really ignores the causality around that in a way where there's just no humility to the, the modeling that's implicit in that. Okay. It's kind of, it's, it's a stupid metaphor. It's like football coaches today. We're like, well, you know, the, the analytics say we should go for it on fourth and one. Well, no. The analytics say that on aggregate, that's a better idea than not. The analytics would tell you to build a team that's really good at going for it on fourth and one and has big linemen and good running backs. That's what the analytics are telling you. To exactly. Do. They're not telling you to go for it every time you're faced with fourth and one. That's not how analytics work. You're, you have to understand yep. the context you're operating in. And it was always, and Andy, you know this, because yeah. we, for years, you were great at this, which was helping companies understand that shopper marketing is a campaign. It's mm -hmm. not a series of tactics that you evaluate That's one right. at a time. I've got to bracket that in a campaign and measure the campaign. Right. And that if I don't do some of the things in here that don't tactically have their own independent return, I don't get to do the things that actually do generate the return. So I have to evaluate them all together as a, as a total thing, not as an independent piece. And I really do think that the, the digital world has really hurt people's ability to think in campaigns and has really caused everyone to think more in individual tactics and then just trying to run algorithms to optimize individual tactics. And you know, yeah. I don't want to sound like an old man yelling at a cloud here. It's not, but I am. Well, we are man. two old guys, that's for sure. Yeah, and I might be yelling at a cloud, you never know. But, but, <laughs> I, but in this case, I'm, I'm not decrying analytics. I'm simply suggesting no. that they're an incomplete answer to the problem. Well, and maybe some of the wrong wrong tools. Yeah, we're not the two guys in the booth heckling the Muppets, but the, I do think... Stat Lauren Warlord, if you ever need another name. Oh, well, good. There you go. That's helpful. <laughs> um, but I do think because um, retail media networks have been really accelerated through more of a performance marketing, e-commerce yes. e space, and that space is, and how that's different than shopper marketing is fundamental because shopper marketing, the question is, how do you grow the category and your brand? 
not just your brand because no no buyer i'll put my retailer hat on you know i'm not really that interested in growing your brand but if you can show me how this grows the category i'm all in and so you lose that campaign grow the category consumer solution sets when you really focus it down to just a pdp page just an item just a brand and get really micro and i think that's the the clash that it's hard to see that, you know, what was the shop shopper marketing is a set of principles about right. let's grow and build campaigns that grow categories and our brands win, of course, um, gets lost in the granularity of some of the performance marketing. Here's a hypothesis. Um, Cause I think that if you look at the way that performance marketing companies that were largely digital have grown up and the way they talk about what they do, they kind of separate almost by venture capital stage the work that they're doing. So if I'm a series A, I go out and I'm all about a I'm all about, you know, mm-hmm. product market fit. If I'm in series B, that's when I'm about customer acquisition. When I'm in series C, that's when I'm all about retention and reducing churn rate. And I'm in series D, that's when I'm about trying to figure out how to make the whole freaking thing profitable, right? I'm paraphrasing loosely. But it's interesting because the challenge of winning customers and the challenge of retaining them are seen as two very different activities in performance marketing, right? Yep. So I know you've got customer lifetime value and calculations, but for the most part, performance marketing is a lot like dating, right? Like I'm going to put on a great show and hope it works, and um, and you know hope we get to the next day or hope something good happens to me. Um, selling consumables in a shopper marketing environment is a little bit more like marriage, right? Like the relationship right. you have with your grocery retailer is a lot. It's it's over time. There's a predictability to it, which is beneficial and reassuring. The fact that I don't have to think about it every day is not always terrible, or I don't have to actively do something about it every day is not always terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, that there are times in which I wanted to engage, and there are times where I wanted, I just wanted to work. There are times where other things in my life are more important to me than this. And it needs to be there as a foundation, whatever, right? Like <laughs> I'm the wrong guy to talk about marriage, but um, but um, don't need my advice on that. But uh, but certainly within the uh, but certainly within that context, I think the divide in the performance marketing world between customer acquisition and then retention and reducing churn, I think, is unhelpful for a conversation for retailers who are primarily working with customers that they've retained already not customers that they're acquiring so i think the way the ways in which success are framed up in those two ecosystems is really different well and i'd love to hear your perspective on discovery discovering new items discovering new brands you know you're trying to get new brands launched there's not maybe a history there of on an seo level or uh ratings and reviews It, it feels to me like discovery is getting harder and you know how do you think of uh what would your advice be to brands that you know, want to get new items and they need to get discovery, but yet the performance marketing is going to pull you back to the tried and true, you know, kind of spaces where you can get, you can be more predictable about ROI. Well, I think this is going to get interesting because I think that, because I do think this, this is one where I think brands are going to need to learn something from performance marketing. And to be honest, I think that a lot of, I think a lot more growth for companies from a new item perspective is going to come from new items that are built more like performance marketing D2C brands are, even if they're not performance marketing or D2C, for two reasons. One, I think it's probably a more effective way to build a brand in a world in which I can't just put it on a physical shelf, spend a ton of money, buy buy a Super Bowl ad and hope all that works. Um, And two, 
so yeah, and I so I think that level of organic development with you know obviously with paid for intent and strategy and all that, I think that's important. And two, the retailers today, if I'm looking to dedicate shelf space to a new item, are choosing between brand A that is going to go old fashioned, you know, CPG line extension television advertising on third tier cable TV, but it's a big number. So it looks impressive, even though nobody's watching it. And all of a sudden, you know, like that model war, I could go, I could go find some cool entrepreneurs fun to hang out with who has 125,000 followers on Instagram, who I know are going to be seeking that brand out in a physical store. There's just less risk, ironically, to that than yeah. there is to the big company launch. Yeah. And you know, I've heard I've heard some retailers talk about this, where they basically said, "Look, you know, the new item launch platform of the future is going to be you're going to launch this thing online. We're going to see if it works, and then we'll figure out if it warrants shelf space." I think there's mm-hmm. going to be fewer items that big companies cook up that out of the box are going to warrant eighty percent ACV distribution. Yeah, that the retailers are the retailers just aren't going to do that. No. So I do think that the new item launch process, I do think will get permanently shifted by the way that the digital world tends to grow and develop new items. So I think if I'm a CPG company, I'm going to have a portfolio. Of the one thing I'm able to do, because I have more money, I can run 10 or 15 ideas, pick two that work, watch the other 13 fail and be okay with that. Yeah, An individual entrepreneur can't do that. So that's where I think the advantage of scale is going to be. The only advantage of scale is I can fail and, and not notice. Like, yeah, that's the, that's well, the only advantage of scale today, apart from retail media. Which talked about. Yeah. And I read something recently that, you know, discovery for uh, new items, interesting items like that is now TikTok for, yes. you know, for, for versus, versus even searching a retailer site. Uh, oh, you know, I mean, and, and that's why I, pl- I applaud Walmart for this recent announcement on, you know, creating a creator platform. You know, I, I, I obviously they get it that there's there's got to be that influencer piece. But, you know, I was amazed at how much product loads can be generated just from, you know, really interesting TikTok experiences with product. Well, it's funny because we did some research last year at Omnicom where we looked around the world at shopping behaviors across a multitude of categories and a multitude of markets. And the one thing I kept seeing is I was the one going through the data at the end. And the one thing I kept seeing is that it's like I would write up the summary and you know, and and in this retail format in this country, Gen Z under-indexed on using retail to search. I'm like, mm. okay. And then I kind of looked at all of that. It's just Gen Z didn't over-index anywhere in particular. They just under-indexed on searching, period. <laughs> yeah. Why? Because they're not searching. They're getting ideas from TikTok and Instagram and they're procuring in retail. And yeah. they're using, Love that. and this is this is why Amazon is the big winner from TikTok and Instagram, because Amazon is the fastest and easiest place to procure something. So right. I see it, you know, saw it on TikTok, bought it on Amazon is a real thing. Um, and, yep. um, and that's a, that is a very, very big part of the ecosystem. I'm trying to find some wacko item that I've never seen before anywhere else. And I can remember the brand, or I can even remember vaguely what it looked like. It's way easier to do that on Amazon than anywhere else. I tried doing this on Google today, you know, yeah. ripped from today's headlines. But, you know, those little three-in-one chargers you have where you have yeah. your phone and your watch and your mm-hmm. AirPods. I actually saw those in a presentation. I saw that in a presentation that somebody did. Reminded me that I'd seen it on Prime Day on Amazon and didn't buy it. But then I tried to Google it to see just, like, who made it. 
And the Google experience was so bad. I just gave up and went to Amazon. Like, okay, well, you fine. Pretty sure I saw this on Amazon before. I'm just going to go look for it here. Yeah. Um, so, well, so. you said two things there that I think are interesting to unpack a little bit. Um, first, you talked about you know the the friction, and I see I saw you put up a, a slide once about Amazon, and and it really was just a, a can of WD forty. Did you unpack yeah. that because that has insights for how other retailers should look at opportunity and threats? Yeah. If you if you if you put that image of WD forty in your mind, what is what? Explain that one. Shout out as always to my good friends at WD forty. Um, but uh, but yeah, because I it just if you think about what Amazon's brilliant at, they're they're brilliant at the removal of friction. That's really what Amazon's superpower is, both user experience friction, but also commercial friction. And it it was just kind of I remember once I was trying to think about why Amazon was successful post 2001 crash when, because there's really only two digital assets that survived the 2001 implosion. It was Amazon and Google. Um, Facebook wasn't invented yet. So, uh, so Facebook was only invented in 2002. So, um, so the, the, those are the only two digital things that remain from like the early era, right? So, you know, they're like, they're like sharks and birds, right? They're the only two things that survived from the dinosaur era. So how did they, how did they get there? And what Amazon did was they inserted themselves into a problem, and this was their origin story, which was books, where not only was the user experience of buying books a little broken, but the commercial model was insane. Like the relationships between publishers and bookstores was demented. Um, mm -hmm. And the bookstores made more money returning books to publishers than they did selling them. Um, so that's commercial friction, right? right? So if you have a terrible user experience or anything that lags in any way, or you've got a commercial model where money is, isn't just flowing one way smoothly, but is flowing back and forth. Assume that both of those things are opportunities that if Amazon ever figured them out, they would insert themselves into. And essentially, this is, I joke with people about this all the time. It's like consumers just spray Amazon on a problem all the time, right? Like I was trying to solve this thing before. I don't, Amazon's not the best way to buy this, I don't think, but I can, yeah. it can stop annoying. At least friction. I'm done. Yep. Yeah. And it's not perfect, but it's better than it was. And I think that retailers, particularly retailers with clunky user experience, have gotten destroyed by Amazon and just Amazon. And the shopper's inability to wade through a suboptimal experience, given how ruthlessly efficient the Amazon platform is and how well most shoppers know it at this point, it is, it is really hard to run anything that doesn't get the shopper where they're going quite quickly in a world where Amazon exists. So I think this is one of the things that I get really worried about in the whole field of marketing, but in particular, anything having to do with retail marketing or shopper marketing to get back. Because everybody, I mean, Andy, you've been part of more presentations than I ever will be about how people have told you that the future of brick and mortar retail is experiential. And, you know, Forrester yeah. talks about the experience economy and everybody gets, it's like, sure, I guess. Um, but mm -hmm. if you create an experience where somebody doesn't want one, that's not great. Um, no. So that's just a no. waste of their time. And yeah. If you're creating a digital experience where somebody doesn't want one and that's getting in the way of what they're trying to do, you're going to find Amazon sprayed on you more quickly than you care to think about. Yeah. So one of the things that Amazon's done well is the uh, hiring and building up the relevance engineering teams and really focusing on making sure it's relevance. They remember searches, they remember and try to serve you relevance. However, I don't see the relevance engineering teams 
you know, in the in the other spaces, uh, other retailer networks, most of most of the other retailer networks, there might be a few that do it really well. But but, you know, relevance is so important and you've got to have that. Now, you had mentioned uh, the Google experience. I'll, I'll tell you, the, I'll yeah. tell you the one retail experience that's actually not bad at it is Instacart. So, uh, was, so yeah. I, think, I think Instacart does a better job of this than most just because they're operating off of a fairly constrained ecosystem of relevance. So it's pretty easy yep. for them. And their user interface is just not it's not as amazon centric as everyone else's web interfaces because everybody else basically tried to go build the second best version of amazon for reasons yep. best known to them um and you've ended up with sites that look a lot like amazon which looks a lot like the library of congress which is just not a very interesting way to do much of anything so so i, I the one thing i would encourage any retailer in the world to do is to try to come up with a try to come up with a less library-esque organization structure for their website that makes things findable, but doesn't make them so subcategory classified that they're impossible for the shopper to navigate and to just keep what you've bought regularly more top of mind to the, the to its to your to its digital memory, I guess. Now moving beyond relevance, uh look at uh, the Google experience you just had. Uh, where do you feel the consumer is going to draw the line on ad loads, uh, pays you know pays before they see organics, and is there a risk that that you know retail, Amazon retail, other retail media networks follow that heavy ad loads because it, it feels to me like so far what I'm seeing is consumer seems to be tolerating it, but I don't know where that line's going to get drawn. I think it's going to get way worse as people get old. I, I, as this, as these kids grow up. Um, um, I, I think as a generation that has grown up more savvy about what they're seeing in these things starts to starts to be responsible for spending more money. I think that's going to shift pretty dramatically. Um, I, I really, I do think the short-term monetization opportunity for platforms that sell advertising has become I would always want to chip up. It's like one of those golf holes. Like you can you can leave it short, but don't go over the green. Um, like I, I think I think a lot of ad networks run the risk of going well over the green in into into out of bounds territory. Um, yeah. Just look, leave leave an ad on the table, man. Just you know. Yep. Google, do you really need another billion dollars? Is that essential? You know, what are we what are we doing here? I mean, if your shareholders are the tiniest bit sad for a brief moment in time, they'll probably get over it. They can go sleep on their down pillows and all that stuff. They're going to be okay. Yeah. You know, just just really prioritize the user experience. Because I do think a generation's growing up where not only are they used to searches that are algorithmically generated for their interest, not produced to sell them ads. Yes. Um, but also it just they just don't trust it. They don't trust the advertising supported network. Not because oh we don't trust big whatever. They just know it's ads. Yeah. It's not it's not interesting to them. It's like uh you know it's like the first time it's like the first time you read like a you know like an like info journalism, whatever they call that stuff in a magazine, you're like, wow, that's a really good article about going on vacation in Aruba. Like, I don't know why it's here, but wow. This was, and yeah. all of a sudden, oh, it's an ad. I yeah, yeah, and that, then, oh, and then oh. you just flip past them, even though it looks like the rest of the magazine, you'd flip past yeah. it, right? Yeah. And um, 
Oh, why you've got your crystal ball out and look, well, this isn't a crystal ball dude that was a pretty solid rearview mirror so <laughs> we, we might we, we might as well be doing an episode of golden girls at this point so. <laughs> well as you uh look into the future maybe two to three years from now I, you know uh, this this environment looks different almost quarter by quarter so i know this is really hard but i mean what do you expect to find or hope to find as you uh, as you and i get back and do this again two to three years from now uh, what do you think we should be talking about or you hope we're talking about? Well, I think, look, I think uh, I think if you get back to retail media networks, because we've touched yeah. on a range of topics here, including the Golden Girls. Um, I think um, I, I think I think retail media networks are getting better at they're getting better at serving up a media proposition to brands that makes sense. Um, that's easier for the brand to buy in a more seamless way. Now it does, it's not going to two, three years now, it's probably still not going to be perfect, but it's going to be easier to use. It's going to be less friction and there'll be better measurement and better traceability. It's not going to be perfect. Um, one of the, one of the folks yesterday on a panel talking about shopper marketing measurement said very profoundly, you can't let perfect be the enemy of good. And mm -hmm. certainly when you're working off of, you know, nothing, you know, having, taught kids algebra in houses for a long time the thing you realize very quickly is like look if you're dividing something by zero literally anything is infinitely better than nothing so that's yeah. a straight algebra so let's not let's not let anything be the enemy of nothing and let's not let the perfect be the enemy of the good um i think they're um i think retailers are going to understand that brands are going to need to fund this through a combination of media spend and underperforming trade and right. that's going to become a bigger and a more transparent part of the joint business plan. I think on balance, the notion that retailers have to sell opportunity to the manufacturer and not just buy, I think is a really nice nuance to the dynamic between manufacturer and retailer mm -hmm. that will get them to realize that in the, sh in the battle for share of attention and the battle for share of wallet in the grand scheme of things, big brands and big retailers have more, more in common than they do different. So Absolutely. they're, they're each fighting a lot of the same stuff. I think the medium sized brands are going to be a little bit, I will have solved some of this. I think somebody will have solved the problem of aggregating medium sized retail media audiences so that they can be bought a little bit more programmatically. Well, on this um, current, oh, let me interrupt real quick, Brian, on this current trend of where we are today, we have 600 allegedly uh, retail media networks in the U S alone. What do you right. think the number is going to be in two to three years? Less, more, less um i mean well there may be more but there i mean i think the number of effective buying points for them will be down by a factor of i don't know 30 i mean i just yeah. who's gonna buy who wants to buy 600 media networks right i mean that's yeah yeah that's why that's why dv360 and the trade desk exist right no, nobody wants to do that um so um so yeah i i uh i i think i think you're gonna see some I think there's a lot of re-aggregation that's going to go on in the digital media space, certainly from a content point of view, because right now you're at a point where, you know, no one can remember which content apps they've subscribed to and what their logins and passwords are for all of them. And eventually somebody's going to bundle all that together and it's going to look an awful lot like a cable company. Yeah. Um, and we're going to be right back where we started. And you're um, seeing certain vertical slices like Ibotta start to do that, right? I mean, uh, from different angles in. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I do think, um, you know, whether it's Avada or Fetch or any of these folks that kind of work in a pan retailer way, yes, I think they'll be able to, I think you're going to see more, you'll, and then I think eventually, you know, not to 
not to make it, but those you're not gonna have 70 of those either, right? I mean, right. somebody's gonna right. consolidate right. that into right. demand R us and you know have a giant warehouse of demand creation tools that you can you can there'll be virtue to integrating those and not buying each one of those as an independent buying point. And if it's not the retailer aggregating that, it'll be some third party that sees the opportunity there. Right. And um I also think the other thing which I think bewilders me sometimes and um is that I think the retail media networks have spent so much time doing what retailers know how to do, which is yelling at the people that sell them stuff and getting them to give them money, that there are a whole host of other people in the world that would be willing to give people money. And, you know, I was joking about this with you in the prep, but, you know, if I were a drugstore retail media network, I wouldn't spend a second trying to sell Procter & Gamble on that as the sixth best retail media network they're going to sell to, although I'm sure they're better than that. My apologies to everyone who does that for a living, but yep. just go sell the pharma companies, right? I mean, the pharma companies need to reach these people. They have no systematic way of understanding who audiences are that are trying to buy healthcare. You know, and pharma companies from an advertising point of view, light money on fire to stay warm. I mean, they, they, they have to, because I see some of these yeah. ads that are so not relevant to me where you've got this you know, very, maybe very important, but very, you know, rare disease that's taken up, you know, 30 minutes, 30 seconds of prime time. I'm like, who in the world can afford this? Yeah. Now there, there are HIPAA restrictions, obviously, about what you can do with that on a broad base, but certainly for the 97,000 diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis ads that you see, there's some pretty easy non-HIPAA driven crossover targeting you could do around pain relief and sugar-free everything right. that you can use to identify who those people are in a retail media network and advertise them, I would think, in a relatively compelling way. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, just looking at the huge verticals of spend in the media ecosystem, it does, it wouldn't stun me if five years from now, non-endemic advertising was a bigger part of the retail media network ecosystem than endemic was. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Um, well, Brian, we've turned over a lot of stones. Is there any t- stones we haven't turned over that uh, you think's worth talking about? Um, I don't think so, man. I think we've probably tested the audience's patience long enough. But uh, <laughs> but no, um, no, I, no. This has been awesome, Andy, and it's uh, it's a, really a pl- it's a pl- pleasure chatting with you. And uh, and, and and yeah, it's uh, I've uh, I've been an admirer of yours for a very long time in the industry. If uh, you you. You did a lot to change the way people think about stuff, and that's uh, that's something not many people can say. So, well done. Uh, thank you. That's that's very kind, and I feel like we've got new life and new legs as we try to face on these new challenges for you know you and I both to figure out. You know, how do we make sense out of this and cast the longer vision? So I, I I'm excited as I am when shopper marketing first you know started to really uh, kick off because I think with that kind of friction and uh chaos there's a whole lot of silver linings and i found the gold is always in the silver lining so you know there's a lot of opportunity in front of us well 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 so the gold is always in the silver lining i think i'm going to steal that from you thanks <laughs> yeah please do <laughs> <laughs> brian it's been a pleasure buddy and i really appreciate your time i know you're a sought after speaker and for you to be able to do this on short notice given we wanted to cover some of the conference stuff is a, is a real uh, treat for me and, and and the folks that follow us so Thank you again, and I hope to see you soon. All right, take care, Andy. That's it for this episode of It's a Customer's World. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends, and I'd be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. 
And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's a Customers World podcast is a product of the University of Arkansas's Customer-Centric Leadership Initiative and a Wilton College original production. 